I've been introduced. My name is Brennan, one of the pastors here. Welcome to you if you're here. If you're online and joining us, warm welcome to you too. Uh, particularly if you have COVID and you're stuck at home. Uh, warm welcome. Trust you're coping okay. Well, if you're visiting here, uh, where it just loves Jesus, as we've introduced, um, and we hope you feel at home here. This church is a church for everyone, and we trust you feel welcome. We are in the middle of a series on the Gospel of Luke, and so if you have a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 15. We're going to be reading uh, from the whole of the chapter, but we're going to start our time together with just two verses. Luke is really a biography of Jesus' life uh, put together by one of his first disciples, the Dr. Luke. He was a physician. And really, Luke, at the start of his gospel, says his task is to create an orderly account based on eyewitness testimonies of the life of Jesus. And that is this book, as we find it in God's Word, in the Bible, an orderly account of the life of Jesus, chapter 15. And I'm just going to read, as we begin, the last two verses of the chapter. We're going to go through the whole chapter together. So Luke, chapter 15, verse 31. I'm going to read and then we'll pray together. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead. And is alive. He was lost. And is found. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we want to thank you so much for the privilege this morning of celebrating the gift of children. And Lord, as we turn our attention now to the gift of your word and the gift of your son Jesus, we pray that you would open our eyes to see him for who he is. So, Lord, empower the preaching of your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the most heart-wrenching films of all time, in my opinion, is the 2016 Australian film, Lion. This film is actually based on a true story. The true story of Saru a five-year-old boy living with his elder brother, Gadu, his mother, and his younger baby sister in Kandwa, India. Now, Gadu and Saru, for their work, steal coal from freight trains to trade for milk and food. And one night, Saru pesters his brother, Gadu, who's going to work overnight to let him come too. Now, Gadu at, at first refuses, and yet after continued pestering, finally relents. And they arrive at a nearby train station where Saru, in the end, because he's a tiny five-year-old boy, is too tired to stay awake. Gadu places Saru on a bench and tells him to wait for his return. And Saru promptly falls asleep, only to wake up and find that his brother, Gadu is not there. Saru searches the station for Gadu and gets on an empty train looking for him. 
But then the tiredness kicks in and he falls asleep on this empty train. Only to awake sometime later to find the train in motion and the doors locked. And this little boy ends up living on the streets of Calcutta, completely lost. He attempts, in fact, a maid to kidnap him and sell him into sex slavery, which he escapes. And he eventually lands in an orphanage from where he's adopted by parents from Hobart, Australia. But there's this one haunting scene in this film of this tiny little boy having just woken up on this empty train, doors all locked, walking down the aisles, calling out, Gadoo, Gadoo, Gadoo. You know, since having kids, Charlotte and I tried to rewatch that film and we just couldn't. It's just too moving, too sad. Well, have you ever gotten completely lost before? You know, I will confess this morning to you all that I am, in fact, directionally challenged. Um, I quite, it's quite easy for me to get lost. Um, Google Maps is God's gift to me, I will confess. Uh, my ease of getting lost started at a young age. I remember I was in kindy, caught the wrong uh, bus home from school, ended up on the top of my street, walked down to my neighbor's fence and panicked. I thought I was in the wrong place, went back up to the main road and was found wandering the streets, crying, not sure where I should be. I was about 10 meters away from my house, would you believe? Um, this continued into later in life. I was doing a placement as a physiotherapist in a small rural hospital and I would just get completely lost and be wandering up and down the corridors. My supervisor supervisor would say, I paged you like 15 minutes ago. Where were you? I was just busy with something. I was walking up and down the corridors. I had no idea where I was going. You know, though it's possible to be literally lost, we're going to uh, going around in circles with no idea where you are, but there's actually another type of lost, a kind of lost that Jesus frequently talked about a kind of lost that is central to our passage today. And that is that there's a kind of lost that refers to you having lost your way in life. Eight times the idea of being lost is referred to in our passage. It's the key concern of Jesus in this passage. And we're going to explore what Jesus means by this kind of lost in our passage as we unpack it. But the central concern, in fact, of Jesus is to answer the obvious question which is what is God's attitude towards those who have lost their way in life? If you're taking notes this morning, I've entitled this message, The Father of the Lost. And really there's two points that come from dividing up this passage very simply. But one hope for our time together, friends, this morning, and that is that we would see that the heart of God is to graciously seek and save the lost. That is his heart for the lost. So let's dive into our passage this morning as we look at that heart of God to seek and save the lost with point number one, which is the principle, God's heart for the lost. You know, for many people, this idea of God's attitude toward the lost is obvious. Surely he must despise them. You know, if God is holy, 
if God is transcendent, if God is all-powerful, he must look at people who are corrupt and defiled and have lost their way with indignance, filled with rage, wanting to punish them and destroy them. Also, it's possible that that's been your experience with church, that in your past experience with church, you've encountered moralistic people and you're tempted to think God must be the same. If God exists, he must be like the self-righteous people I've encountered before in my church experience. In fact, this is exactly the assumption that many people interacting with Jesus in our passage are making as well. Read with me the first two verses of chapter 15. It says the following. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus is eating and drinking and spending time with some of the most hated people in his culture, tax collectors. These were national traitors. They were corrupt. They would extort their own people. It's hard to describe the kind of resentment that people in the first century had for tax collectors. I would say probably it's akin to the sex offenders of today. And that is that they were viewed with disgust. You might ask yourself the question, well, what's the big deal with having a meal with them? I mean, you know, we have meals with lots of different people all the time. Well, in first century Jewish culture, eating and drinking with someone was a sign of friendship and embrace. It seemed to imply that Jesus was embracing them, that he was approving of their illicit lifestyle. And so the question that it raised for people was, what? Aren't these the sorts of people that God hates? How could a rabbi have anything to do with such wicked people? If Jesus really was a holy man, He'd want nothing to do with people like this. And in response, Jesus tells them two parables. Let's read them together from verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In both of these parables, a person has lost something that is extremely precious to them. The first is a shepherd with a medium-sized flock who loses a single sheep. The second is a woman who has a silver coin lost inside her home. And when faced with 
the loss of these precious items, they both do the same thing. It's the normal human response. They diligently search to find it. The shepherd likely entrusts his flock to another and he goes looking for the sheep. The woman lights a lamp. Homes in the first century often had no windows or very small windows. They were dark inside. So she lights a lamp and she sweeps her likely dirt floor to see where that coin might have been lodged. And Jesus is saying that just as the natural human response to losing something precious is to search for it, God likewise is in the business of seeking out those who are lost to him. See, notice what the sheep contributes to its being found. Nothing. Notice what the coin contributes to its discovery. Nothing at all. It is the owner who is committed to finding them because they are precious. See, Jesus' point is that if people who lose things, they value, devote themselves to finding them, how much more with God? That's not all. Jesus is also trying to show the crowds that our response to finding something that is precious is also the same. Both the shepherd and the woman have nearly identical responses to finding the things they have lost. They are filled with joy. They're not angry. They're not ticked off. They're not critical. They're not annoyed at the length of time it took. They immediately rejoice. More the joy is so great, they pull others into it. They call friends and neighbors to lavish parties. Why? Because they had to? Because that was what was expected? No. Because they love their lost possessions. And so they are filled with excitement to have them back. Jesus' point couldn't be clearer. God doesn't despise those who have lost their way. He is looking for them. And there will be great celebration for everyone who is found. See, the Bible teaches that God is the maker and rightful ruler over everything in the universe. God has eternally existed as a loving relationship in the Bible. He is a father who loves his son through the Holy Spirit. And he created humanity in his own likeness, the pinnacle of all his works. And so our existence, it's not random, it's not purposeless, but purposeful. It's to know and love him for who he is, a father with a son who he loves through the Holy Spirit. And God made us to walk through life alongside him, to know him and enjoy him. Yet long ago, we rejected our relationship with him. We chose self-determination, self-rule, and we lost our way in life. And Jesus is saying that because we belong to God, because we are precious to him, he isn't neutral about our situation or frustrated. He is seeking us out diligently. He is looking for what has been lost to him. And he is determined to lavishly celebrate the moment he finds what is lost to him. And that's our point number one, the principle. These tax collectors and sinners were flocking to Jesus because they had thought God hated the lost and were thrilled to learn he didn't. Similarly, the religious leaders were incredibly 
angry with Jesus because they had thought and taught the same. Jesus, however, tells these parables to show an important principle. God deeply cares for the lost. Not just point number one, the principle, God's heart for the lost, but point number two, two different ways to be lost. See, Jesus doesn't just leave it there. His lesson has just begun. He now turns to tell us one of the most famous parables in the whole Bible to help us see two ways in which a person can be lost. Now, this is known as the parable of the prodigal son. But Jesus isn't interested in teaching about one lost son. Look at how verse 11 begins. Jesus begins teaching in verse 11, not about one lost son, but he says the following. There was a man who had not one, but two sons. This is a parable, in fact, about two lost sons. And the first son we discover is the youngest son, the one who we are most familiar with, known as the prodigal son. I realized this week I had no idea what prodigal meant. I thought it meant like prodigious, like, prodigious, like a prodigy. You know, like, like kids are like super gifted and stuff. And that's wrong. It's not what it means. I was confused. How does that relate to this? Anyway, it's someone who spends excessive amounts of money or uses resources freely and recklessly, right? And indeed, this is true of this son. Read with me the following in verse 11. It says the following. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. You know, we're so familiar with this passage, we lose the horror of what is taking place here. You know, like much of the world today, the culture of Jesus' day was incredibly hierarchical and family-oriented. What the younger son is saying by demanding his inheritance before his father has died is effectively to say, I no longer wish to associate with this family, and you are as good as dead to me. I want to take what is mine, I want to move away, and I want to live how I please. It's absolutely shocking and unjust. You know, we live in a society where we have social care structures and safety nets to support family. In those days, it was just your children. That's all you had to support you in your final years. And these parents have sacrificially worked to raise this boy, and he is now abandoning them in his hour of need. More in an agricultural community, which... Jesus' day people lived in, their main asset wouldn't have been dollars in the bank, but land that belonged to the family, likely for generations. And so the son is saying, I want to sell my bit of the family land and just give me the cash so I can be out of here and live how I please. James Edwards in his commentary puts it this way. He says, the youngest son's request shames both his father and his family. 
It is a certified public statement that he no longer wishes to live within or be identified by the family. In requesting what should have been only available at his father's death, the son is, in effect, writing his father's death certificate. In ancient Jewish society, that was a virtually unforgivable offense. You know, we see the father's pain in the way Jesus describes what he did next. In verse 12, it says, he divided his property. The word he used is bios in the original Greek, from which we get biology, the study of life. It means he divided to him his life. Now, this father could have, in this context, rebuked his son. He could have said, you get in line and you wait for me to die like I had to wait for my father. He could have appealed to honor. He could have said, son, don't humiliate our family like this. He could have tried to buy his favor. Look, son, I'll double your pocket money, okay? But he doesn't fight him. Perhaps he sees that any act of authority will only push him further away. And he sees perhaps that this painful approach is the only way to win back his son. And so he sells the land and he gives it to his son and he lets him go. Imagine if this was you. Imagine if your child came to you and said, I want you to remortgage the house because I want to take my share now and be gone from you. What an incredibly painful thing to do. And he goes. Big dreams of finding happiness and purpose in living how he pleases. He's going to be true to himself. He's going to follow his passions. He's going to have fun. And he wastes it all with reckless living. More famine leaves him starving and in need. He hits rock bottom. He's feeding pigs, a profession in Jewish culture because pigs are unclean that people would have refused to do. And he's not even earning enough to eat. And he's longing just to eat pig food. And we read the following in verse 17. It says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. His desperate situation opens his eyes to the kindness of his father towards him. He'd have been better off as a servant in his father's house. It says in the passage, I perish here with hunger. Perish That word is a play on words. It's the same word that's been used repeatedly for lost throughout the passage. He says, effectively, I will soon be permanently lost here with hunger. And so he resolves to return to his father and ask for mercy. I've sinned against God and against you. The son rightly sees that the way he's been living is not simply against his physical father, but also his heavenly father who made him. And so we read the following in verse 20. It says, And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and then bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. The father sees his son coming from a distance and he's deeply moved and filled with compassion. He runs something undignified for, for a family elder to do, having to gird his, his clothing and expose his legs, but he does it anyway. And it says he literally fell upon his neck. He clings to his neck and embraces him and kisses him profusely. And the son begins his speech exactly as he had prepared. Notice what his speech entails. No self-defense or justifying. He simply says, I don't even deserve to be called your son after the way I have treated this family. And his father in his joy is not deterred. He calls for the first or the finest robe. That would have been his own finest robe. And he puts a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. And, and the fattened calf, which would have been an animal deliberately overfed with grain, prepared for special annual celebrations, a costly in the extreme item. And yet he, he slaughters it because we're going to have a massive celebration. You know, what's the significance of this? The father is receiving his son back. Not as a servant, but as his son. He is restoring him to his place of honor in the family as a son. And this is something worth celebrating. You know, you might be here today and you wouldn't normally call yourself a follower of Jesus. And you wouldn't normally go to church because, I don't know, maybe a few churches make you feel guilty. And maybe part of the reason is that you know you've made a mess of your life. That you've been running away from God and living for yourself. You know you haven't been living for God. You've been choosing your own dreams and chasing your own dreams. You've been looking at churches and, and you think they're all a bit too good for me. And I, I, I could never make it up to God for how I've lived. And just like the younger son, you've found yourself chasing self-fulfillment in life. Well, the father is looking for you like a lost sheep. Like a precious coin. He's standing at the door, scanning the horizon, waiting for you. His heart filled with compassion for you. He's ready to bear the cost of your abandonment of him. How great his love for you is. Like the youngest son, he is ready to receive you. You see, this is exactly the kind of person that Jesus came for. Jesus is God's search party. That's why he was with these social outcasts. You know, Jesus would go on to say in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. There was genuine cost for the father to welcome back this younger son. A cost even greater than the loss of wealth. He had been publicly humiliated by his son. He had been publicly shamed. His son had disowned and dishonored him. But rather than forcing his son to repay a debt he could in no way afford, he takes it upon himself. You know, we have all committed wrongs against God by our personal rejection of him. And God is so glorious, these wrongs can never be repaid by us. We are destitute like his starving son. More we're relationally cut off from our father in heaven. But the Lord Jesus came to live the life we failed to live. 
And he died in our place, taking our shame and sin so that we could be released from the price of it. The debt has been paid. But Jesus isn't finished yet. This is the parable of not one, but two sons. The first son may have been lost chasing self-fulfillment, but the oldest son, we will see, has become lost chasing moral conformity. Why don't you read with me verse 25 of our passage. Jesus says the following. Now his oldest son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And when the older brother hears about the restoration of his brother, he doesn't celebrate. He's furious. Notice where he is in the story. He's not only out separated from the party in the field when he receives the news, but he refuses to go back in to be with his father or his brother. You see, the older son is also lost. He's also not reconciled with his father. He's steaming with anger towards his father and refusing to accept the restoration of his brother. And yet notice the father once more does not leave his lost son alone. Like a lost sheep, like a lost coin, he comes out searching. Read with me again, verse 28. It says the following. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. He leaves the party searching for his son and even better, pleads with him. And yet the older son also has a speech prepared. We read it in verse 29. He says the following. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Look, he begins with a disrespectful address to his father. These many years I've served, literally, I've slaved for you. But what has it gotten me? It's been a waste of time. I've been perfectly obedient, but received nothing in return. This son of yours, notice he distances himself from his brother. This son of yours, he wastes it with prostitutes. You welcome him straight back in with a party, pure favoritism. I knew it. You always preferred him over me. You can feel the rage in his tone as he lashes out against his father. But here's the point. This straight-laced son is portrayed by Jesus as being equally lost. Arguably more lost 
as he closes the parable with this son's story. But how? How could someone be such a good person and be lost? You know, there's a common thread that ties both these sons together. There's a common root that has led one son to wish his father dead and pursue his own dreams and the other to fly into a self-righteous rage. Well, what is this common thread? What is the essence of what makes both these sons lost? The answer is this. Neither of them loved their father. They merely wished to use him for their own ends. You know, in many ways, the youngest son's problem is more obvious. He sees his father only in terms of his inheritance, and he takes and he runs, but he shipwrecks his life and he comes back. The older son's problem is initially less visible. It's only revealed at the very end when he speaks. You see, why was he being so faithful in all that he was doing for his father? Well, it wasn't because he loved him. It was because of what he thought he would get out of it in return. He was doing it in the expectation of praise, in the expectation of thanks and reward. His motivation was actually selfish. In a way, it was a form of manipulation, faithfully obeying his father to get what I want from him, but void of a genuine love for him. That's why you can't celebrate at his father's joy of his son being reunited to him. He's not happy for his father because he's primarily focused on himself and he has been robbed. And he reveals a catalog of perceived injustice from his father. See, the oldest son's example shows us that it's possible to be a very, very good person and still be completely lost. In many ways, that's a more dangerous position because it's so insidious, it's hard to see. You can be a person of extremely good social standing. You can be a climate warrior and and you could be raising money for multiple charities. You could be campaigning for equality. You could be kind and generous to all your neighbors. You could be incredibly religious and go to church every week, but be more lost than the prodigal son at his most desperate situation. Why? Because being lost is not about what you do, but whether you're in right relationship with your father. Being lost is about whether you actually truly love him. See, Jesus was once asked what the greatest thing that God wants from people is, and this is what he said. Matthew 22, verse 37, and he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. To love God is the purpose of, for which we were made as people. And to be lost, therefore, is not to be living in the way he designed. See, you could outwardly be the most kind-hearted, the most generous, the most religious, the most faithful person and still be completely lost because your heart towards God is cold. And this is our neighborhood. Most people here are outwardly good and successful people. They've worked hard to achieve their place in the world. But they have little desire for God. 
But here's the good news. This father is ever committed to restoring both of his lost sons. Read with me those last two verses of our passage. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The father's encouragement is so touching. My son, you have me, and everything I own belongs to you. My son, can't you see that I'm with you? And there is therefore nothing that you need. Your brother is back, and it is fitting that better we must celebrate because he has been found. And then Jesus simply ends the story to the crowds right here. Unresolved. Does the older brother repent of his loveless relationship with his father? Does he confess his self-righteousness in the way he's been so cold towards his father and family? We're not told. Does the younger brother stay true to his confession and begin to truly love his father? Or is it lip service? Does he recover only to return to his reckless living? Jesus doesn't say. It's as if Jesus is inviting you to finish the story. It's as though he's... He sits surrounded by those religious elite and outcasts and he is saying, God's heart is for the lost. What kind of lost are you? How will your story end? See, Jesus taught the truth that the natural condition of all people is to be lost. We've all wandered from our Father in heaven and none of us love him as we ought. The prophet Isaiah puts it this way. He says, we all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, to be lost is the natural condition of all people. None of us have loved God as we should. But the Lord God, like the forgiving father of the parable, is seeking the lost in love. So much so that he sent the Lord Jesus to bear the cost of all our sins. The ultimate search party for both the religious and irreligious alike, the tax collectors and Pharisees. See, the question is not... Am I lost? The question is, can I see just how lost I am? Well, just as we close our time uh, together, how should we respond to these parables? Well, firstly, if you're here today and, and maybe you realize for the first time that you are, in fact, not right with God, you are, in fact, lost. Maybe you've been chasing self-fulfillment, career or relationship or travel or children or money and possessions or spiritual experiences even, but you realize your heart towards God is cold. Maybe you've been chasing moral conformity by volunteering every opportunity you can, scouts and cubs and SES and RFS and super involved in church and prayer meetings and small groups and door knocking. But you're actually angry with God because he's not delivering as you feel your service merits. Or maybe it's a little bit of both. Maybe a little bit of self-fulfillment, a little bit of moral conformity as well. But you realize that just like both these sons, you've not loved your heavenly father as you ought. How should you respond? 
I think we see such a beautiful example of it in verse 18 with the first son's response. He says, I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And come to your father with an unconditional apology, just like this younger son, and put your trust in Jesus. Make him the savior and Lord of your life. Make him your savior. Trust him for what he did for you on the cross. And make him the king he rightfully claims to be over your life. Your master that he has the right to dictate the terms of your life and follow his example. And enjoy walking with him, knowing there'll be a great celebration in heaven for you. You know, maybe just even this discussion leads you with more questions. I just want to add to Dave's invitation about our Alpha course. We would love to have you along. You can do it from home. Uh, it's our expression of our heart as a church to serve you. You're most welcome to come and join us. We love questions. We want to help you meet Jesus. We believe Jesus can tra- change your life. But lastly, maybe you're here today and you are following Jesus. How do we rightfully apply this for us as well? Well, I think the answer is we pause and we remember. Remember the moment Jesus found you. Remember where you were. Remember what your life was like. Remember that like a lost coin, like a lost sheep, like both those lost sons, that you did not search for him, but he came searching for you. Remember what it cost our great shepherd to come and find you and remember how he willingly died. And remember the joyful celebration that occurred the moment you repented and remember how it continues on this day in heaven up until now. And remember how he's been working to transform your life to this very day. Remember all these things and give thanks that you were once lost. And now you are found. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we want to thank you for the privilege of sitting under the words of our Lord Jesus this morning and and learning from him. We thank you that through the Lord Jesus, you have revealed to us your heart for the lost. Your heart for those who have lost their way in life. Lord God, thank you that you are not angry or ticked off with those who are lost. But just like the father in the parable, you are filled with compassion and you are searching, pleading. Lord, I pray we would see that. And I pray that knowledge would not drive us away, but drive us to come running back to you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.